0: We're in a series in First John called Becoming Like Jesus, and then there's like a series within a series, like an Inception sort of thing, we're in this, we're in this like series in the series called A Triad of Christlikeness, and we're in part three today of a three-part series in this series of Becoming Like Jesus. And part one was um, knowing Jesus was the first part of John's triad, and the second part is obeying Jesus, and the third part, which we'll get to today, and all weave together by the end, is loving like Jesus, that's today. So I'm going to be reading from different texts. I'll tell you the, the, the passage before I read it, so you know how to turn there, or when to turn there, and so on and so forth. So I'll read, and then we, we will, I'll pray. First John, chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, then verse 16 through 17. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Skip down. Verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world... We are like Jesus. Those are our texts this morning. Let's pray. Lord, um, I'm really glad to be with uh, our church family this morning, gathering underneath the scriptures, and I pray that you would teach us to love. I mean, I think we all come to this passage in this book. We know that it talks a lot about love, and I think we also come with our own idea of what that means, and I pray that we would today just be open would be receptive to what you mean by us loving each other. And that might challenge us. It needs to challenge us. It should challenge us. If, if our goal is to love like Jesus, that is a lofty goal. And so I pray today we would be both encouraged, exhorted, and be given power by the Spirit to live into these things. So I pray you take this teaching that feels a little disconnected in a lot of parts and find a way to connect them for the sake of us growing and learning to become like you. So I submit all of my capacities to you ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I just read a couple verses about love from 1 John, but um, I didn't really even get to scratch the surface of what this letter or this sermon um, says about the subject of love because First John is really all about love. This whole entire letter or book or sermon or whatever you want to call it is about love. The word love is used in this tiny little book more than any other book in the New Testament. And 1 John 4, 7 has the most love mentions in any other verse in the entire Bible. Just so much love in this, in that, in that little verse. 1 John is a book about love. This is what 1 John says about love. God is love. Love comes from God. Jesus is God's love shown to us. Love is seen in Jesus' life and death for us. To know God is to love him. To love God is to love others. Without love, we cannot know God. To love is to be like Jesus. This is what John teaches. This is what John unpacks for us in his letter. But here's the hardest part about teaching on love, especially for me. I, I have, I'll always have a hard time teaching on love. Because everyone in this room either thinks they know what love is through some sort of experience you have had. Or you at least have a working definition of what love is. But what if our definitions of love have no realistic quality to them? What if they are only our ideals of what we lock in our minds? Because I know um, San Francisco, especially this church, is full of idealists. You guys all have ideals of what love is. And what if we're really going after an ideal that we lock into our minds and our hearts that everyone around us keeps falling short of, even ourselves. What we, what we need is a buoyant definition of love and a palpable application of what love is to our lives. And I think this is what John does and this is what John gives us. So a, a couple of things. What I'll do is the first couple of points this morning, will deal with um, a theological exploration of what John means when he says God is love. And then this is the part that I, I just prayed and asked God to connect because I, I don't know how it connects. But the last point going into the closing thoughts and points or whatever, deal with like a pastoral application of this, things that I've been wanting to share with our church community for a while, but didn't really have the words. And I, to be honest, don't really have the words. So I'll fumble through the last part. So don't leave. If it gets too cold, there might be a train wreck coming at the end of this thing. You don't want to miss it. So the first two parts are about the theological underpinnings of what John means when he says God is love. First he says this, God is both the source of love and the very definition of love. Love comes from God. This is not love, that you love God. That's not love. This is love. God loved you. That's the very definition of love. He even says that God is love. It wouldn't be a stress to say that what makes God God is love. Now there are many different definitions when it comes to love. Maybe we hear God is love, and the real problem is that we might agree with that. I think most of pe- most people in San Francisco, if you walked up to them, whether they have any basis of a Christian foundation or not, you say God is love. Everybody, everyone, I think would agree with you. The real problem is we tend to read our definition of love backwards onto God, so we don't say God is love. We kind of think of it, love is God, but that's not true. It only goes one way. God, who defines love, is love, and he defines what love is. You cannot go, well, this is love, and then I'm going to read that backwards to God. That doesn't work that way. See, when pagan religious writers would speak of a God loving or a loving God, they usually would use the word eros in Greek, which normally refers to sexual desire and sexual love. This is not what John is saying. John is not saying that God's love is like our love, full of sexual tension and sentimentality. He's not saying that at all. John was Jewish. So his idea of love and God being love comes from how God revealed himself to Israel. So John has his whole idea, his whole like thought cloud, thought world about what love is taken from the, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. He was immersed in them. He was Jewish. See, the first time that God self-identifies himself in the Bible, he talks about who he is, and he defines himself by saying, I am love. Look at Exodus. It's on the screen, 34, 5 through 7. Moses, uh, the leader of God's people out of Egypt into the promised land, um, asked to see God. And God says, you can't see me. You just, you can't handle it. But what I'll do is I'll pass by you. And as I pass by you, I will say, I will tell you who I am. I will give you my name is what he said. Look at verse uh, 5. Then the Lord came down on the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. Now this is the first time that God really describes who he is, self-identifies. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. He explains what Yahweh means. He tells Moses earlier, my name is Yahweh, but he explains what that means. I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, in case you think that, that, that means I don't take sin seriously, <laughs> he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So this is the first time, this is one of the few times in the Bible that we get God describing himself. This is out of God's own mouth. This is who I am. And he says, This is my name, he says. I will proclaim to you my name. And what does God say about himself? He says this: I am love. Actually, he says, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. And the word love in Hebrew is chased or chased, if you're trying to say it right, or you kind of get gargly in the beginning of it, right? It's chased. It's this, the the word is, is love. And it's really hard to translate because it's not just love. It, it's, way, it's way more um, robust and, th- and more committed and rugged than just love. This word is actually used more of God than it is used of humans and uh, human beings in the Old Testament. It really means, uh, it carries the idea of faithfulness, of love, of loving kindness, of loyalty, of commitment, and covenant. It's a covenant word, okay? So the best way to translate chesed is steadfast love. It's the best way to translate it. God's saying, I am a, I am steadfast love. Steadfast love is the closest that we can come to defining this word. And the reason why you want to put steadfast and love together is steadfast strengthens and reinforces the emotion of the word. Because love is a very emotional word. It's like love. And because love is an emotion, it can be strong one day and gone the next day. Can anyone attest to that? Right? Love can be strong, like, oh, I love you. And the next day you're like, uh. mm. Steadfast strengthens that word and makes it robust. Like, I will continue to love you. And it's love is there because if I just said, hey, I'm steadfast towards you, that, does, that, 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 that has no emotion to it. it st- a love brings kindness to steadfastness. It brings um, care to steadfastness. No, not only is God steadfast in his commitment to us, but his steadfastness is defined by kindness and care and committed loyalty and faithfulness and love. So the best word that we have to describe it is these two words. Steadfast love is the word chaset. So God says to Moses, I am steadfast love. And this word is a covenant word. This word means the best, one of my favorite definitions of it is a rugged commitment to another. What God is saying is that I am, I have rugged loving commitment to the world through Israel in the Old Testament ultimately through Jesus in the New Testament, I have a rugged, loving commitment to the world. I am committed to the world's good. I am committed to redeeming the world. I, am com- I have a rugged commitment. I am the Lord, steadfast love. Now hold on to rugged commitment for a second. We'll come back to that. Secondly, what John says is that Jesus is the model of love. Not only is God love, but Jesus then exemplifies, shows, and models this love for us. And look what John does here. I love it, because John is a wisdom, almost like a wisdom writer, and he writes with a riddle. I I like this riddle. If you like riddles, this is a fun one. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you had from the beginning. This old command is the message you heard, yet I'm writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. So (laughs) so you're like, wait, you're reading this, you're like, John, dude, um, is it old or new? You're like, I'm not writing you a new command, it's an old one. Actually, I'm writing you a new command. You're like, what did you just said? And it's a riddle. And this is how you're supposed to think about this. What command is both old and new? Which command is old because you had seen it since the beginning, and yet at the same time it's new because you've seen it, you've seen the truth of it lived out in him and in you. Which command has been lived out and thus has made the darkness begin to pass and the true light come? That's what you're supposed to, you see, it's not a, it's, it's a riddle. It, it, it sounds like a contradiction or a paradox, but it's made to make, made you, it's meant to make you think. It's meant to make you wise just by answering it. And the answer is what? Love. What is, what command is both old and new? What command is old because you've had it since the beginning, but new because you've seen it renewed and shown to you vividly? The seeing the truth in him and then in you and your life in him. And the answer is love. The command to love is both old and new. Because it's been God's heart for his people since the beginning, it's old. But it's also new because we have finally seen God's definition of it play out in real time in Jesus. So this command is old. Look at the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Here wrote Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's an old command, right? Deuteronomy. From the beginning, the Jewish people have always known that God is love and that love for God means obedience to God and his commands, okay? They've always known that. That's old, but this command is new, John 3.13, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. And you would think, wait, that's an old command. But Jesus says, no, this is renewed in the sense that I have showed you vividly what this means. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what Jesus does is Jesus makes this command new because he shows us what love looks like. Now, go back to the definition of love that I gave you in Exodus 34. Chesed, steadfast love, rugged commitment. Jesus shows us what kind of lover God is. God loves us so much. God is so ruggedly committed to the good of the world that he gives his only son to redeem us from sin. He's he's so committed to our humanity's redemption. He is so committed to our being free from bondage. He is so committed. He is true chesed love. He is true steadfast love that he would send his son. Jesus shows us what kind of love, if God is love, what's the character of that love it's shown to us in Jesus. It's Jesus' rugged commitment to the Father, his commitment to be obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's his rugged commitment to obey the Father. Whatever the Father desires that Jesus would do in his life, he will do it. It's a rugged commitment to humanity by going to the cross and dying for us to free us from what enslaves us, what destroys us, what separates us from God. So Jesus' love is a love that frees us. It frees us by showing us what love really is. Love that moves beyond feeling to action. Love that is shown by what Jesus has done on the cross. It's a perfect picture of who God is. It's the perfect representation of God. If you want to know what God is like, go and look at Jesus on the cross. This is the apex of all of the scriptures. Everything in the Old Testament, everything after the cross points back to this moment. Jesus on the cross best best describes God's love for us. His giving, self-giving love, so that we can both see what our sin ultimately does. Our sin ultimately kills the Son of God. It's that bad. And how it takes our punishment and our wrath at the same time. And it's an expression of God's love that he's willing to go through that for us. This is love. And you have to know the real thing. When I was, um, I used to work as a, uh, youth pastor in Bakersfield, and before I moved to, I moved to start a church, this church, not a church, this one, um, I had this, like, gap in between where I, I went into a residency program at Reality in Carpinteria, and the first uh, year, they said, you just get a normal job, and it's like a year, res, uh, first year residency is more like you're just here, and you work a normal job, and you love your wife, and the church, and Jesus, and not in that order, but kind of, and... Um, and this is what you do for a year. And so um, I worked at a church like uh, for a long time, so I didn't really have uh, that many skills. So I, I worked at, um, I applied to all kinds of places and then ended up getting a job at a, a, job at a bank and uh, being a bank teller. I, I say I was in finance, but I was a bank, bank teller. And, um, uh, and so I, I, I wasn't good at this job because um, I would accidentally give people more money than they, they uh <laughs> Anyway, that's a different story. When I was in training, I was in training, um, we were in the part of training about counterfeit money. And they would literally say, the way that you can tell a counterfeit is by studying the real thing. Like, here, we want to give you hundreds to play with. And we're like, I'm like, this is, this is really fun. And like... The- <laughs> Like feel the texture of them and the weight and blah, 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 this, all of the stuff. And get so familiar with this so when you get a fake one, you'll know it because you know the real thing. This is kind of how we really understand love. We understand love only by getting the real thing. We don't understand love by always knowing the fake stuff. We have to know the real thing in Jesus. So um, if you're like, well, I love, I don't, I'm not really a Christian, but I love. Uh, John would say, well, you don't, re- you might love as your ex- idea of what love is, but you don't know the real article until you've received the love of Christ. Until you've seen the true love of Jesus, you don't really understand what love is. You don't know the real, ar- real thing. You might know love by, by learning love the hard way, meaning being loved imperfectly or being used by people or being hurt by other people. But you could, o- you only, from there, is the process of elimination, If you really want to know what love is, Jesus demonstrates the chesed love of God, the steadfast, immovable, rugged commitment to us and our redemption, that kind of love, Jesus demonstrates for us. And he demonstrates the love that God always wanted us to show each other. Okay, so this is where it kind of transitions. This is the part where um, I'm operating without a map here. Okay, so um, this This love that Jesus has shown us, he then says, I want you to show this kind of love to each other. He says, love how I love. Watch and learn and then go do likewise. If you are my follower, I want you to love like me. Follow my example. And actually, to tell you the truth, as you love, that's how people will know that you are my followers. If you love each other, if you love like I love. So, the third thing that we learn is that we are given the command to love like Jesus. So, everyone turn to uh, 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. Not John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. Look at verse 16. Look at what John says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Okay, stop there. Keep that on the screen. We hear words like this all the time in the New Testament. We hear things like, if you've been in church a while, you've heard things like this. Die to yourselves. Crucify the flesh. Die daily. Lay your lives down for one another, right? You've probably heard all of those things said. And these are very powerful teachings, and very powerful exhortations. But here's the problem with all of them. We typically interpret these words in a sentimental or spiritual manner. We, make, we, we turn these exhortations into, into like expressions of attitude or of a spirit or of self-sacrifice or something like that. Die to yourself, kind of like live not for yourself that much this week. And we, we kind of like, like make them sentimental or we make them spiritual. So because we don't take these verses literally, we have a very hard time taking them realistically. So because we don't say, okay, for example, um, crucify your flesh. Because you don't do that literally, you don't hang your body on a cross every day. You don't do that. So we kind of like, well, I don't really do that literally. It's kind of figurative. And so we kind of take, we don't even really know how to even take it realistically. We don't like, how do, what does that mean really? Well, I know it doesn't mean literally, but I have no idea what it really means. Because we don't literally crucify our flesh daily, we have a hard time knowing how to realistically do that. Because we don't literally lay our life down for our brothers and sisters. Because this week I didn't physically die for anyone. We don't know how to realistically lay our lives down, but John won't let us get away with that because that's a temptation, right? Hey guys, love each other. Give your lives for each other. And we're like, okay, the time ever comes and I need to like jump in front of a bus for you. I got you. (laughs) But up until that time, I'm just going to do me. Okay. (laughs) We just don't even know even the gap between the two. How do we fill that gap? So we fill it with sentimental things like I'll, I'll love you, I'll give you like my coat if you're cold, like maybe right now if someone's cold, give them your coat, like that sort of thing. But we just don't know how to fill in the gap. But again, John won't let us do that. This is what John says, the very next verse. Lay your lives down for each other. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? See what he did there? He's like, guys, Jesus died for us. Die for each other. If you see someone that has need, fill it. He makes it very, very, he makes it, this is the most concrete that John gets. John's a mystic, so he's usually pretty lofty and all the stuff, but he gets, he drills down, and he says, dear children, little, little ones, basically, this is translated, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. If you're going to love, shut up about it and do something. If you're going to love, let, show your love. Don't just talk about your love. And this is, again, so let's go back. This is kind of the thread I wanted to, to, to like um, sew here. Um, God is love was given to us at the very beginning when he said, I am chased love, rugged commitment to you. Jesus shows that to us. I am ruggedly committed to your redemption. And then he tells us, love one another. What do you think that word means? It means that we are to be rugged. We, have, we should have a rugged commitment to each other. A very practical, rugged commitment to each other. And this is what each other means. See the person on your right? That person. See the person on your left? That person. You're like, but I don't know them. I don't care. Someone on the, on the, in the balcony. Someone on the, like this, this, this. We're supposed to have a rugged commitment to each other. That lives its way out practically, by self-sacrificial giving, by sharing. There should be no one in this church that has need Amen. at all. No one. If you have need, it's because you haven't told us your need. Or, you're, or we just haven't seen it yet, and we want to live longer with you and closer with you that we see your need. There should be no physical need here. If you need food or clothing or shelter or money or whatever, you should not have need in this church. There's just no way. There's so much wealth in this building. There's no way someone should be in need. So John is saying this is very, very concrete. Okay. If, and, and this isn't just like a thing to like, yay, raw. I mean, for real, if you have need of any of those things, like come forward and tell one of the elders and the elders will go, who can meet this need in the church? How can we, we be ruggedly committed to one another? This is what this sort of thing means. It means sharing. It John is making this, uh, again, concrete. If Jesus gave his life for us, we can give our stuff. Okay? We can give our money. We can give our time. We can give our cars or our jackets or our things. Whatever it is, we can give those things. So, again, this means that we are ruggedly committed to each other. Now, this is the part where... I've hesitated to give, give this to you the entire book. I actually was not going to say this, but I think, it's, I think it's kind of important. So let me caveat it a bit. I've hesitated to give you the background of this book because of what our church has been going through. I do not want to be one of those. I don't want to be a pastor that uses the pulpit to talk about other people. Don't ever want to do that. I've never wanted to be that. So I've all, I, I've hesitated from sharing this part because automatically people are gonna read into this that I'm talking about what's happened and I'm not, I'm not. So let me say, I will share this, but I do not have anyone in mind when I share this. Um, we have lived through a really difficult season as a church and there have been people that have left our church and because of my failure, because of the failure of the elderships, because of mutual contribution, all kinds of stuff. And so when I share this, I don't mean to talk about anyone. But John is writing this letter from a church that just went through a church split. People left. Why they left, no, one, no, no writer knows. Um, they call them the cessationists. The commentators call them cessationists, people that, who left, who, who seceded. Like, I, I'm out. I'm out of this church. Some people think they left for doctrinal reasons. Some people think they left because the uh, unity was broken in the church, and then they ended up leaving. John is writing to a church who is reeling. Because some people that they loved have left. And what John is saying is this. Love for one another is a rugged commitment to each other to stick it out. To stay the course. You're not, again, I'm not reading this to anyone. You're not allowed to leave. Now, we were like, whoa, whoa, wait. wait. <laughs> but there's other churches. The re- How I got to reality was I left another church. I know. I know all of this stuff. But it still doesn't, it doesn't take away the fact that this is, what John is writing to is like, don't leave. You learn through rugged commitment. Do you want to learn, you don't want to learn to love like Jesus did? Um, uh, Stay ruggedly committed to something. Do that. See, this is um, why uh, when people get married, they're like, whoa, 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 marriage is way harder than I thought. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard. Very, very hard. Um, you, you have kids. Whoa, having kids is really hard. Yeah, having kids is really, really hard. That, that, what that is is that it's life making you be ruggedly committed to something that you can't get out of. And you figure it out. And you stick with it. And you love anyways. And then what happens is all of a sudden you start maturing. And you might be th- sitting here thinking, oh, I just don't feel like I've matured. Let me ask yourself a question. Have you been ruggedly committed to anything? Have you been regularly committed to a person? Have you been regularly committed to a church, a community, a job? What, anything? Are you just bouncing around to relationships? You're bouncing around to jobs? You're bouncing around to cities? You're just like, you're not committed to anything. You will never learn how to love like Jesus unless you're ruggedly committed to something. And the thing that Jesus says to be regularly committed to here, what John says, is be regularly committed to one another. And what he means by one another is this. I know one another is just like, oh, one another, all the people, no. The church, this specific church he's writing to. Be ruggedly committed to one another. There are people who left. Don't do that. Stick around. Be ruggedly committed to each other. Now, obviously, there was, obviously that's, this has been really hard to actually even point out in the, the application to this in this letter because of the, everything that, again, we have gone through. I think I've learned more about being uh, ruggedly, ruggedly committed to my wife, ruggedly committed to commitments that I've, I have had to make, even though I've done a lot of failure. I've made a lot of failures. The way that you mature, the way that your soul gets terraformed tore, uh, into the, like, the formation of Christ, into to looking like Christ, is through your, your chesed love for something. Your steadfast love for something. So let me ask you. Where's your steadfast love towards? What is it in your life that you're like, I have this rugged commitment to this, and I will not let go, even though it gets super hard. Now, I know some of you guys are going to want to read into that, but what if you're abused? What if, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a rugged commitment to something. Uh, we're, We're flighty people in San Francisco. We're really uncommitted people. We love to Bop around here and go here and go there and check this out and try this thing out. Relationships, churches, jobs, whatever. Keep all of our options open. We have a huge fear of commitment. That fear of commitment is keeping you from becoming like Jesus. What John is saying is love means a rugged, stay put sort of commitment. Now, I'll be honest. This is not easy. This is not easy. This is very hard stuff. It's hard to stay committed. It's hard to stay committed to a church. It's hard to stay committed to a relationship. It's hard to stay committed to a community group. It's really hard to stay committed to a group of friends. It's hard to stay committed to a place that is so hard. In the difficulty, in the struggle, is how you become like Jesus. The way that John says it, he says, um, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another if we said, if we have steadfast love, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us, meaning by us being ruggedly committed to each other, that is how God's in love, he loves you intentionally and the, his intentions for his love towards you is, is actually made complete by our rugged commitment to each other. How does God's love actually um, uh, grow in my life? How, how do I know God's love more? Um, by being ruggedly committed to each other. It's not through more, more great worship albums. It's not, it's not through like more times joining the, uh, getting on the prayer team or coming up for the prayer team, though all of that is insanely important. The way that you grow in love is by being ruggedly committed to each other. And everything difficult about that will, will grow you in love. Now... Um, Okay, I'm checking my time here. Uh, J- John, uh, he, he writes, first uh, John, right? Revelation, and then the book of John. He writes the gospel of John, right? Same, same guy. And um, John is the last gospel writer to write. Mark was first, followed by Matthew, then Luke. And then finally, when John was like 80 years old or something, he wrote uh, the, the gospel of John. And when John got to the um, last supper, All the other gospel writers wrote about the bread and the cup, bread and wine, communion. But John, he was there, by the way, John was there. When John writes about that night, he doesn't mention communion. He doesn't mention the Eucharist. Now, a lot of writers and and thinkers and commentators have, have thought long and hard about why in the world did not did John not add communion to there. And this is what they think happened. John was a pastor. He traveled around a lot of churches, and ab- about f- the first like 50 or uh, 40, 50 years of, of the early church, it, was, it started to be marked by so, many, so, many di- so much division, so much schism. It was killing him. It was killing John. They used to say that John would show up at a church, he would get up, and he would just say, little children love each other, and then they, then they would take him off stage. Like, that, that was his whole sermon. Love, love each other. And then he would leave. That's an easy sermon to prepare for, by the way. <laughs> so, he gets to writing the upper room, uh, the, the Last Supper, and he's writing about what happened there. And he doesn't add communion. And the reason why is because there's so much division over communion. There was so much division on how you take communion. Paul writes to it, right, to the church in Corinth. There was so much confusion, and division around how you take communion, what's it for, all this and all that. It, I, I don't know all the arguments around it, but they would argue, and they would divide over it. And so John said, well, I'm not going to put communion in there. I'm going to put how we actually live out communion. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do instead of giving the bread and the cup in John's gospel? A towel and a basin and he gets down and he washes their feet. And what John is saying is that, do you want to really live out communion? Communion is going across the table to people who don't agree with you and washing their feet anyway. Little children love each other like that. That is communion lived out. Washing each other's feet, serving each other, even if you don't agree. There's so much division in the church. There's so much division in the church, just in the city, let alone in our nation. There's so much division in our church that we think that somehow people who live in a different part of our country that are Christian are different than us and are Christian. That is just absolutely demonic. We need to love each other, like ruggedly commit to each other, ruggedly commit to serving each other, meeting each other's needs, caring for each other well, okay? We need this. This must be lived out. We must care for what the other person cares about and make sure that justice starts rolling down here. Okay. But then also, we say things like this. We love our city. We love San Francisco. What do we mean when we say we love San Francisco? Now, a lot of us think, and we, we've said this since even the beginning of our, our church. Like, we love this city. We want to love this city and serve this city. And so what do we take that to mean? A lot of people that move to San Francisco, they fall in love with San Francisco. They love the culture here, it's, it's super uh, weird and innovative and eccentric and quirky, incredible food and coffee and bread, oh my gosh, the bread, all this stuff, right? Opportunities. So do we, what do we mean when we love the city? Like all that stuff, it's exciting, there's stuff to do. What, do we mean that we love all that stuff? Well, yeah, maybe. Do we mean we love the school systems and the public transportation and the cost of living and how easy it is to buy a house? Easy in quotes, right? No way. No, we don't, maybe not. We don't really mean that. What do we mean when we say we love this city? This is what we mean. We mean that we are committed, ruggedly committed to this city's good. We are ruggedly committed to its welfare. We have a rugged commitment to its people and the systems of the city, that they be just. We are ruggedly committed to that and it will take our entire lives. You will not solve it in five years. You will not solve it in 20 years. It will probably give your entire life to it. And so there's something about, even in that, I'm when we say, I love this city, I am ruggedly committed to its good. And so when I see... When I see injustice done in oppressive systems or neighborhoods or homeless, whatever it is, I'm regularly committed because I know that's not good for humanity, that's not good for the city, and that is not ultimately what get, uh, gives God glory. So I will work and I will be regularly committed to change this thing. I'm regularly committed to our school systems and even though all of this stuff is happening, I'm committed to making it better. This is what we mean by we're saying love. It's not like I have this affectionate love to the coolness of the city. That's not what it's just saying at all. I am ruggedly committed to this broken place. When you say that about the church, I am ruggedly committed to this broken church. Rugged commitment is how God shapes and transforms our love. And this will be a struggle. Okay, as I end now, I want to end by trying to connect this entire series together. Okay, so we said at the beginning of this series that the central verse of this entire book is 1 John 2.6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Remember that? A perfect little verse that really sums up the Christian life. If you are a Christian, you're, you and I are supposed to live like Jesus. Now that's easier said than done. So we have asked over the last three weeks, what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus like for reals follow Jesus? If we were, and we said this, if we were brought to a court of trial um, and a court of law and accused of being a Christian, what characteristics would we have to exhibit for there would be enough evidence to convict us? We've been saying that for the last three weeks, which we've been saying is an important question because there's a lot of confusion around this. And so to answer that question, John says there's a triad of Christ likeness, and it is this, knowing Jesus Obeying Jesus and loving like Jesus. We've done all three of those, right? Okay, so let me try to summarize what I mean by all three of them together. Knowing Jesus has to do with knowing Jesus relationally. Through prayer, through studying his life and teachings, learning to make his life and practices your life and practices. What were the practices of Jesus? We said that Dallas Willard, the famous philosopher, summed them up like this. He said, "These were the practices of Jesus that you and I should be practicing as followers of Jesus: solitude and silence, prayer, simple and sacrificial living, intense study and meditation upon God's word and God's ways, and service to others, especially the poor and the marginalized." Those were the practices of Jesus that we, as we relationally grow to know Christ as Christians, must be practicing as well. Then we talked about that moves into obeying Jesus. And this has to do with after meditating on the teachings of Jesus, what we are to do is in every way that we can bring, out, bring your life into conformity with all of Jesus' teachings. That's obedience. So whatever Jesus teaches about money, we learn and then we take in and then we start practicing with our own money. What did Jesus teach about money? I mean, it's, it's, first of all, he, te- he taught about money that you cannot serve both God and money. So there's something about money that gets our hearts and our hearts get wrapped around money. And so in order, some of us, like the rich young ruler, God would say, give it all away because it's your God and you need to let go of it. Some of us, it's sacrificial. It's just getting into simple and sacrificial living. Whatever Jesus teaches about money, we apply to our lives and we start doing it. Whatever te- Jesus teaches about how we serve the poor, we learn it, we take it in and we start doing it. Whatever Jesus teaches about marriage and sex and relationships and singleness, We start practicing. This is obedience. Now I say this by way of fusing this all together. Loving like Jesus, if you do not do the first two, if you do not, and this is this is like the this is important, if you do not follow Jesus, know Jesus, practice the way of Jesus, if you do not obey Jesus, start taking his teachings, infusing them in your life. If you don't do the first two, you will not have the power or the capacity or the deep resource of character to draw from to do the last one. If you do not know Jesus and obey Jesus, I don't think you can even have the capacity to love like Jesus. This triad of Christlikeness are all interconnected realities and, you know, I also think they might be some, more, some like, like, different stages in the Christian life. Different levels in the Christian life. And they interconnect, so you can be a part of all the levels at once or whatever, but they are a progressive thing, I think. This is, and I might be wrong, but I think that they all, they all overlap, but I think this is helpful to think about them in stages or, like, levels, okay? If you're, like, um, play video games or whatever. Okay, so the first one, level one is knowing Jesus. You guys, knowing Jesus, learning to follow him, taking in your life his his life. Practice the practice of Jesus. Take in the teachings of Jesus. Meditate on them. Build a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. That must be a part of your life as a follower of Jesus. And then level two, obey him. Bring your life into conformity with all that Jesus taught. This is keeping your moral lives in line with Jesus' teaching. Practicing justice and charity in your life. And you will struggle with both of those. And the struggle is there to grow you, to bend your life into conformity to Christ's life. It's supposed to be hard. It forms us. Okay, level three. Love like Jesus. And here's why I think this might be a level, thing type of, level three type of thing. I, 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 I think that... Um, in order for us to love truly, self-sacrificially like Jesus, to be really ruggedly committed to each other or to a place or to like um, a call in your life, you, m- you have to have the first two down. This is why I think that. Dallas Willard has a quote in his book, excellent book, called Spirit of the Disciplines, which I've been quoting uh, throughout this series. And the first part of this quote is not on the screen, but the last part is. So just hang with me. And then the last part of the quote will be on the screen. But this is what Dallas Willard says. He says, Jesus was able to love his closest companions to the end, even though they often disappointed him greatly and seemed incapable of entering into his faith and works. And then he was able to die a death unsurpassed for its intrinsic beauty and historical effect. And in this truth lies the secret The secret involves living as he lived in in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle, following in his steps, cannot be equated to behaving as he did when he was on the spot. To live as Christ lived is to live as he did in all his life. And then he says this. Our mistake is to think That following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. Dallas Willard says, keep that quote up, do you know why you cannot suffer patiently And hopefully, do you know why it's really hard for you to turn the other cheek? Do you know why it's hard to go the second mile? Do you know why it's hard to love your enemies? All things that Jesus taught. It's not because you can't muster it up. It's not because you didn't pray extra hard that day. It's because you haven't lived like Jesus anywhere else in your life. How do you expect to live like Jesus at those moments where it really counts? So you and I must, level one, know Jesus, practice the way of Jesus. Level two, start obeying Jesus. And then what happens is that love like Jesus starts to flow out from us. Love like Jesus, a love that is robust and committed and like able to turn the other cheek, starts to happen to us. God's love, as John would say, is made complete in us. It actually does its work in us. And loving like Jesus is only possible if you live like Jesus. Or said differently, loving like Jesus requires living like Jesus. There is no other way. John says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. So there is no other way around it. We have to do this. Now, I want to close with Telling you, I am. I am not there yet. I'm still growing. Being on the spot like Jesus is not easy for me. I am. I have. A, I still have some level one, level two terraforming that needs to happen in my soul. When those big moments happen, a couple a few weeks ago, I was with a friend at a restaurant. Um, he's another pastor friend, and we're having a great conversation over fries, the best conversations happen over fries, and um, we're just enjoying, like, talking theology and practice and pastoring, and the, and, and the server comes up, and she says, um, she just says, what do you do when you have a customer who is, like, the worst person you've ever, you've ever, like, seen in your life, or something like that, and we're like, wait, what? Like, are you saying we're bad? Like, what did we do? We... You want us to order more food? Like, we just... And we thought she was talking about us, and we're just going, I mean, passive-aggressive much? This is kind of weird. Um, and, uh, and we're, and so we're like, what's going on? Did we do something? We're joking. Did we do something? She's like, no, I just have someone who's at the bar right now that's being horrible. The things that he's saying are absolutely horrible. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're so sorry, you know. And we're just talking with her. And then she goes away, comes back, and starts talking more. Like, this guy will not shut up. And then we're like, do you want us to go over there? She says, no, 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 please don't. But he's just, you know, he's, he's being, he's talking about women and Mexicans and all of these things. And he's so racist. And he's so, I can't believe this is happening. And she's just angry. And then I start getting really angry. And then our, our time ends, and I get up, and I'm walking out, and she's at the, the bar area. We're at the restaurant area. We're at the bar area, and she, she looks at me. I look at her. I go by, and she, like, looks at the guy, and she goes, remember this face to the guy. And then this guy looks like you would imagine him to look. Like, every movie would, like, cast this guy as the bully, right? <laughs> so I look at him, and I just get hatred in my heart. And I give him this look that looks like, okay, it's time to fight. Like, you and I are gonna fight now. <laughs> and I give him this look, and my friend with me, he has this really kind look on his like He's loving this person through his face. And the guy literally says, oh, I, I like that guy's face, but I don't like your face. <laughs> he says that. And I, and so I give him, like, I go, I go, is it, and I look, I, I said, is this the guy? Like, is this the guy right here? Like, this is the guy that I have to fight now. Like, is this the guy? And, and she's like, no, no, go, just go. And my friend grabs me and like yanks me out of the door. And then we're walking and I'm just going, oh my gosh. I like literally almost got in a fight in a restaurant. This guy's an idiot. And my friend's like, you know, you know what Desmond Tutu would say? I'm like, no, I don't. Like I need to know what Desmond Tutu would say right now. He said, Desmond Tusu say, Tutu would say that it takes the the dehumanization of a soul to act like that. So we should pray for that guy because his soul is so dehumanized that he can say things like that. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I I just wanted to fight him. And then you're talking about loving him. And I, and I also know, I also know what, what Dr. Martin Luther King would say that hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. Right. And, but I was driving home and I was still, I'm even right now, like it's just so worked up in my, I, I did not respond and I was thinking, Jesus, how was I supposed to respond like you? What was I supposed to do? How was I supposed to quote a verse or ask him a, a, a question? Like, what do I do? I, I, and I, and I honestly, even I look back and like, I don't honestly know because I need, I need more of becoming like Jesus. I, I need that. I need that in my own soul where I thought in times in my life, I think I, think I'm, I, I think I know how to respond like Jesus would respond. And then moments come up like this where I totally don't. And I need more. And there's grace. And there's a commitment to going, okay, I will continue to practice Jesus your way. I will continue to take, um, I'll, I'll continue to bring my sin before you. And I will continue to, um, to practice your way. To take in your teachings. To take in what you've said. To take in uh, your life. I will continue to do that. And then one day, maybe one day. And I hope soon I'll be able to act and respond when the most, the worst things are done to me, the worst things are done to someone else, the worst things are done to our church, the worst things are done to whatever. Respond the way Jesus would respond. This takes a commitment to Christ. Not just a rugged commitment to each other. Not just a rugged commitment to to something that we're not committed to right now. But it takes a commitment to Christ, to becoming like Jesus, to confessing our sin and saying, "God, there's." parts of my life, even this last week, that do not match up with your life. And I confess those, and I bring those before you. Forgive me. Teach me a better way. Show me a better way. Let's pray. Lord, as I confess those things to this congregation, I know that there are, there are many ways that we have acted, and we have done, and we have things that are not congruent with who you are, not ways that you would want us to respond, not ways that you would want us to act, not ways that you would want us to live. And we could bring those things before you and confess them and say, Lord, there is still much work to be done in our lives. There is still much work to be done in our church. There is still much work to be done in our city. And Lord, I believe that you are calling, your vision for a church is that they would be the presence of Christ in a place. That when we show up to work, that when we show up to our neighborhood meetings and we show up to different um, important um, meetings that deal with very important systemic issues in our city, we show up and you're calling us to show up as salt and light like Jesus. But that will not happen on the spot. That will not happen on the spot. For the most part, it will not happen. It'll happen as you've done the deep work in our souls, as we've been bound to you, to one another, as we've been making these commitments to you, saying we will become like you, Lord. Then you will make us like you. By your spirit, love will be complete in us. And that's what I pray for this church, that love would be complete in us. You love intentionally. You love, you go after us in your love for a reason to make us like you. So Lord, would your love have its perfect work? As we confess now, as we kneel, as we sing, as we worship you really, really loudly, maybe even actively because it's cold, as we get prayer, as we do this, this, this the, the, do these things, do this stuff, Lord, would you find a way to make it all like the, the end of it all is that we become like you. That is our hope, that we, Reality San Francisco, would be like you in San Francisco. That is our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.